are listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. And now, bringing you the latest in science fiction movies and television shows, here are your here are your This is the capital. We have a little problem with our entrance sequence, so we may experience some slight turbulence and then explode. I got a bad feeling about this. Walter, put the cow away, would you? What is this place? It's a freak show. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. This is episode 143. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Hertzog. And hello, I am Miles P. McLaughlin. And tonight we are bringing you a different episode, an episode where we kind of, uh, you know, it's going to be basically an interview. And do we want to get into the trivia again? Uh, sure, we could do that. Let's. Um, so we're going to keep it Falling Skies uh, related. Yeah, we'll do, the, we'll do the trivia and then we'll give you the interview that we're going to be doing. So this will be quick. Go ahead, give us a trivia. Okay, we, we're asking this week, um, in the Season 1 episode, Armory, having captured Tom and the others during the raid on the Armory, John Pope gives Tom this nickname. All right, and, um, and if the answer is correctly, what do they get? They're going to win an awesome uh, signed print of uh, Kate Vernon from, from oh, Balser Galactica. Kate Vernon. Uh, she's looking really good in that picture. She is definitely looking, especially for an older woman, she's beautiful. Right. Beautiful. And they have a code word they must include? It is uh, skitter. It is skitter. Mm-hmm. And they have till? We're going to wait till what, August? Uh, August 7th. August 7th. Okay. So if you know this, email it into the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast at gmail.com mm-hmm. and uh, include the code word. But our interview tonight is with an in, in, in an artist, an actual, I should say, an author that we met at Balticon. Right. And we had a chance to sit down and do an interview with him. And boy, a man of some great opinions and long diatribes about education and everything. Mm-hmm. We, we went all over the place with this guy. We did. Man. But he was a very knowledgeable guy. And you can tell this guy's had some life experience. And, and if you're looking into getting writing yourself, I think maybe what this guy had to share might, might help you out. Absolutely. Phenomenal guy. This is Mr. Nathan Lowell, mm-hmm. who does the, uh, what, the, uh, the, Tales of the Solar Clipper, right? It is, and uh, the Shaman Tales, many other tales, and he's going to tell you all about it in this little interview that we do with him. So we hope you enjoy. Call me Ishmael. Yeah, I know, but in this case, it's really my name, Ishmael Horatio Huang. My parents had an unfortunate sense of humor, but had they known what I'd wind up doing with my life, they might have picked a different name, Richard Henry Dana, perhaps. Why they picked Ishmael Horatio is a long and not terribly interesting story that begins with my mother was an ancient lit professor and it ends with my being saddled with these non-sequitur monikers. Ladies and gentlemen, the Sci-Fi Diner podcast has done what it can to bring attention to authors and their works. This year, we had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Nathan Lowell at Balticon 46. 
I first heard about this man through one of our listeners, J.P. Harvey, who has cursed me by turning me on to the golden age of the Solar Clipper, and I could not stop listening. He is a teacher, a podcaster, a fantasy and science fiction writer, and an audiobook narrator. Mr. Nathan Lowell, welcome and thank you for taking time to talk to us on the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Well, thanks for having me at the diner. Uh, can I get a cup of coffee? Oh, well, I, you know, if there's any drink that you were going to ask for, it would be coffee. It would be. Of course. Yeah. And uh, I'm afraid that if I were to to give it that um, Mr. Ishmael Wong might not be satisfied with the cleanliness of my uh, of my bats. So. Oh, well. Um, okay. Well, we'll, we'll have to. We'll have to do. We'll have to get do for now. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, nothing that a little vinegar won't take care of, right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, Nate, thank you for joining us. And uh, you know, for people that may not familiar be familiar with who you are, we kind of give them a, a synopsis here. But tell us a little bit about your background, and I think especially in regards to science fiction and fantasy. Um, well, I started reading science fiction and fantasy. Uh, I'm going to say 1956. So I've been in it for a while. Um, ever since I was in elementary school and I, and I saw those little, I had to go through the library and find the books that had the little rocket ships and the, and the atoms on the bindings of the books. And that's how I knew it was science fiction. Oh yeah. Uh, so uh, I've been doing this for, uh, quite a while in terms of, of partaking of science fiction and fantasy. I've, I've been a lifelong fan of the genre. And uh, I always wanted to be a science fiction writer. I, I thought when I was growing up and reading Asimov and Bradbury and Clark, and I thought, you know, that would be a great way to make a living. And then I realized that um, unless I was Asimov, Bradbury, and Clark, I probably couldn't. <laughs> uh, and so I, I sort of tabled it and went on to, to do some other things. And um, I, I always keep in mind one of the very earliest pieces of advice that I, I remember hearing about, if you wanted to be a writer, and I think it might have been uh, Heinlein's uh, list of things you needed to be able to do, but it was it was encapsulated in go live your life so you'll have something to write about. Hmm. Hmm. And and this kind of uh, resulted in you kind of moving in through you you were in what the Coast Guard for a while, right? Yeah, um, when I graduated from high school, I was looking at um, rice paddies in a year unless I enlisted. So. Because uh, this was 1970, it was during the Vietnam War, and so I enlisted in the Coast Guard and spent five years in the Coast Guard. I floated for a year off the coast of New England uh, in a medium endurance cutter on hurricane patrol and fisheries patrol, and then I went to Kodiak, Alaska for a year and a half, and then I spent a couple years working uh, search and rescue communications uh, out of Portland, Maine. So I spent five years in the Guard, got out, uh, went to work for college bookstores and, and worked in bookstores for five years and then gave that up and went to work um, as a data entry clerk and worked my way up over some 30-something years from data entry clerk to vice president of information systems and then switched over to education. All right. So education, what, is a fairly recent transition then you'd say in the span of your career? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, um, in 92, we moved out here to Colorado, and I started doing stand-up training for the corporate IBM kinds of places where I'd go in and do a day's worth of training and uh, stand-up. And in order to get um, 
I moved here from Buffalo, and in Buffalo, of course, it was pretty easy to get internet access as long as you were with the university, and I was because I was a student there. And so I had a really bad internet habit when we moved out here. And in 92, uh, an internet habit wasn't a World Wide Web habit. It was a gopher habit. It was, uh, it was all command line. It was all dial-up. And right. so the only way you could get internet here was through the university. So I enlisted, I enlisted, I enrolled in some classes at the university uh, while I was working during the day. And so I could come home and log on to the university computer and play games and, and dub around and, and, and play with what was then the internet and which would soon become the World Wide Web. And so I managed to uh, play around enough there that I accrued enough credits to need me to make a decision about where I was going to go. And I decided that I would try to get a master's degree in educational technology because that seemed like a good fit. And then before I knew it, I was enrolled in the Ph.D. program. And in 2004, I graduated with my Ph.D. in educational technology. Wow. So, yeah, it's, you know, 92 to 2012. So. Well, that's God. That's twenty years. <laughs> I know. Can you believe it? But I, I, I well, I graduated. Uh, I got my bachelor's degree and made vice president the same year, and that was the year I turned forty. Okay. All right. Well, very cool. You know, you said in education once. This is. I took this from your website. You said one of the lessons I try to teach because you're in distance. You're kind of in distance ed, right? Yeah, that's my specialty area, distance yeah. ed, interactive design, and instructional design. Yeah. You said that um, – and I like this. One of the reasons that lessons I try to teach is that distant ed is not, as so many believe, uh, anywhere, anytime, but rather everywhere, all the time. The truth is that learning can't wait for the classroom or for the educational schedule. How we adjust to that in the middle of the century will largely define how well or if we survive to the end of it. Uh, can you comment on it a little bit? Because I think that's such a profound quote. You know, one of the one of the axioms in the distance education field is that well, if you have you know distance education, you can you can go anywhere, anytime. And the reality is, when you're the teacher, um, you your students can be everywhere all the time. And that's a that's a radical shift because from the teacher's perspective of trying to control a classroom, of trying to control learning, and really they can't, but they think they try to. They really control education, but they don't really control learning. Um, so it's an important idea that when we start dealing with uh, educational spaces online to offer the opportunities for people to learn using the infrastructure that we've built up around the world, it's not a question of being anywhere. It's a question of being everywhere. And it's not a question of being any time. It's a question of being 24-7. It's all the time. At any point in time, some student somewhere – could be needing to learn something right now. And the reality is that the educational infrastructure, particularly in the United States, is set up for course structure. So if I need to learn, and this is June, so if I need to learn how to uh, be a professional web designer, I can't learn how to be a professional web designer because I can't get the credential that certifies that I've learned how to be a professional web designer until probably sometime in August when I would begin a 15-week course and I would probably have to have a second course in um, January to complete my studies in order to get the required certification that certifies that I've learned what I could probably learn on my own in about 
two and a half weeks given a little dedication and half half a mind of my own. And the only thing I would lack would be the certification. So, so the question really becomes, what are we, what are we using education for? How are we using education? And right. the idea that we're using education to give people the training that they need to succeed in their field is really one that I've started to question quite loudly in the educational world because really what we're doing is we're providing credentials. And as soon as credentials become outsourced, higher education is going to be very different. Right. Well, it did, it does make me wonder. I was thinking just even with my, you know, my seniors this year, you know, how, you know, college has just been the norm. People just, you know, automatically leave high school when you go to college and, and with the rate, the college graduates are not getting jobs in their field. Uh, yep. you know, I, you know, I, and the, you know, I begin to wonder, well, and especially when I, when I want to learn something, take podcasting, for example, if I want to learn podcasting, you know, I could go to a university and get a degree probably in something in radio communications or something that would actually help. But but the reality is, you know, you can learn that just by doing a little bit of research, hard work and those credentials and what I've learned over through the school hard knocks and just through my experience is just as valuable as anything I would get at a college. Yeah, exactly. And that's and that's it's really coming to the point now that we've really I come through the singularity in terms of the new economy and the problem is as gibson pointed out the future is already here it's just it's just not uniformly distributed so there are people like me who are actually i'm working in what i would classify the new economy i don't really have to have a phd to do what i do other than the the, the one course a year or the two courses a year that i teach but as an author, I don't need to have any of these degrees. What I do need to have is the ability to podcast, the ability to tell a good story, the ability to reach an audience, the ability to distribute my work. I got all of those, and I don't need a degree or anybody else to provide them to me. Um, mm. My daughter is a senior this year in high school, and she's looking ahead to what she's going to try to do next year. And I'm wondering if she's going to graduate just because her grade point's so low. But that's a that's a different question, <laughs> um, different story. And it's a different story. Well, you know, it's like I'm I'm an educator, and I'm I'm really aware that what she has to learn, I can't teach her. Um, and the ability to operate in the world is one of those things that she has to learn for herself. I can suggest, I can show her where she needs to go, but if she's not willing to go there, I can't force her. Right. So, but she's an artist, and she would really like to make her living as an artist. And looking at her work, I mean, she's already had a couple of commissions. She's already aware of how the artist community works, how the art economy works in this new world. So she's she's been doing book illustrations for kids' books, and um, you know, she's she's seventeen. She's going to be eighteen next year, and, and she's already got a portfolio of professional level work. Uh, that doesn't happen very often. My my younger daughter is just going to be a freshman next year. By the time she graduates from high school, I need to have my career as an author pretty well established because if I don't, she's going to go by me. Oh, wow. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so so it's, it's really an interesting question is, is from an educational standpoint. Where, where are we going and what are we doing? And what I'm seeing that's happening, particularly in public education and public education policy in the U.S. is we're going in the wrong direction. And I don't see anybody who's really willing to, to stop it because all of the decisions are being made by politicians who are protecting politicians and nobody really wants to do the hard work to make education actually work in the United States. Yeah. 
Wow. Last loaded question that I did ask it, and I'm interested from the uh, from the from the educator point of view because it makes me, you know, you think about my own class. I, I teach in a traditional English classroom, and and you know, mm-hmm. learning occurs in theory in my classroom or in the work they do outside. But the idea that, you know, me, but the reality is that me as a an adult, and Miles, probably for you too, that that you're learning as you go. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. The the thing to remember, the thing that I I try to teach, because I teach teachers, I teach grad school. um, And and what I try to teach my teachers is you can control, you can control the education, but the learning has to come from the student. And, and if you can create an environment where the student is engaged, the learning will happen. It has to. And what you need to remember as a teacher is that what the student learns in the classroom is only tangentially related to the material you're presenting at the front of the room. There's an awful lot of learning that's happening out there in the seats that has nothing to do with what you're saying. Uh, and as long as you can keep that in mind and not get too far bent out, it, it seems to work pretty well. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing is um, all learning is at a, uh, all education is at a distance. And all learning is internal. So there's really no such thing as distance learning. Mm. But all, all education is at a distance because as soon as you have a teacher and a student, you have some distance that needs to be bridged. And we're only talking about what technology do you use to bridge that gap. Right, right. Which well, has nothing to do with science fiction. No, but – <laughs> Science fiction notion story about learning and education someday. Well, we have listeners who are teachers, so I'm sure yeah. they will find this interesting. Well, and, 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 and ironically, when we – we'll get into this, but you, one of your main characters, you know, Ishmael Wong, is very much of a teacher in a lot of ways. Yeah, he is. And he, and he, and he doesn't he, – it's not a classroom. It's kind of on-the-job life experience as he teaches. So Yeah, yeah. So, uh, before we get into Ishmael Wong, which obviously we want to talk about, uh, Miles, ask question two. Okay. Um, this is going to sound a very broad question, but um, what made you want to pursue writing? Did you hear that? I did hear that. Okay. And, um, <laughs> the, the answer is really um, another question, and it was, was there a choice? No. <laughs> Well, very good. I mean, seriously, uh, I always wanted to write. I always wanted to tell stories. I come from uh, Maine. I come from coastal Maine. Uh, back in the old days, before I left Maine, I got a job and had to leave the state. Um, but uh, the the down east traditions of storytelling are, are really strong. Uh, there's there's uh, the old Stories around the Cracker Barrel, the stories in the general store in the Potbelly Stove, and the the lumberjack camps, and the farm hands, and the fishermen at sea, they all tell stories. So there's this tradition of Down East storytelling that I, I really tapped into as a kid. Uh, I felt very tied to that tradition. And as I was reading science fiction, it... it I always wanted to be able to tell stories that I thought it would be a wonderful way to go through life would be to entertain people by telling them stories, by writing stories down. And, and how do you make a living at that? And how, how can you make that work? And of course, in 1960, you really couldn't, I, I couldn't, uh, uneducated, rural, poor, um, 
stuck in the back end of nowhere out in rural Maine, you know, lack of communication, lack of infrastructure, lack of con, uh, contact, um, and, and really lack of context because the, the world of arts that I wanted to enter was really had nothing in common with the blue collar world that I grew up in of, of factory workers and farmers and fishermen. Hmm. So as a writer, one of the ways that you've approached your writing is by podcasting your work almost before it's in print. Is that a correct assessment of that? There's no almost about it. I wrote it to podcast it. I wrote it to podcast. I did not write it to put it in a yeah. print. So, so, so why? So, I know that you talk about the new technologies and stuff and the new way of approaching stuff. How does this play in? Why make that decision? What made that decision for you to say, you know what, I'm going to podcast it and then release as a book? Well, I didn't know I was going to release it as a book. Okay. I was only going to podcast it. Um, the the story 2007 is is when the first book came out, but the story really started at the fall of 2004 when podcasting first started being developed and rolled out. Um, back you know when there were only a hundred podcasts in the world, and I was looking at the technology for educational purposes because one of the challenges is how do you get rich media out to rural low bandwidth people and podcast with its RSS delivery of content seemed to me to be a possible uh, mechanism by which I could get rich media content to people who did not have um, fat broadband pipes to deal with it or even high-end computers to use it. So I started looking at podcasting early on and became quite enamored with the whole notion of this, this culture of do-it-yourself radio shows, for lack of a better term, um, where people were able to get on and, and, and do their music or do their talk shows like these. And I listened to you know Keith and the Girl and Adam Curry and Brian Ibbett's Coverville and um, Don and Drew and all of those very early podcasters. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. And then I stumbled on uh, Scott Sigler's Earth Core. And that was a podcast novel. And I thought, well, which led me to patiobooks.com. And I went through all of the books that they had in relatively short order. And so one of the things that occurred to me was that, you know, these people are having an awful lot of fun. And I always wanted to be a science fiction writer, but I never was able to break through the slush pile. I was never able to get my stories in front of an audience and, and as time went on from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s um, that wall that barrier to entry just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger uh, when i started every publisher had a slush pile and it was you know could you get through it and then it wasn't very long ago that you needed to start having an agent in order to get to the biggest publishers and getting through an agent who was then going to try to sell your book was like, you've got to be kidding me. Now I've got to do two steps to get this book in front of somebody. And it isn't happening because I don't write commercial, for lack of a better term, stories. I write the stories that I want to read, not the stories that the publishers think they can sell. So I thought, well, if I podcast this, because remember, I wanted to examine the technology 
to see how easy it was, how difficult it was, what the learning curve was for, for actually executing the technology. And I wanted to see what kind of reach we could get with it. And I was really interested in it from the perspective of a delivery mechanism for educational content. But I was also interested in it because in 2007, the idea of this new economy, of this uh, entertainment economy, uh, of this distributed internet-based economy, is really coming to the fore. And as an educator, I wanted to participate in that economy to see what it looked like, to be able to look at what some of the skills might be needed so that I could actually help to train people to teach those skills. So that's an awful long story, but in 2007, I sat down to write the first book with an intent to podcast it via patiobooks.com. And 10 days later, I sat up with... Uh, got up from my chair, 76,000 words, first draft. I had a beta reader read it, and she said, this is great, um, but you have to fill in a couple of things that you missed, and I love it. Podcast it. Get it out. If you want to hear it, go do it. Um, and I never looked back. I wrote four books that first year. I've written uh, eight books in total. I've got books 9, 10, and 11 currently in my word processor. Uh, I'm now a full-time author. Uh, um, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, well, you know, we want to get into the tales of the golden age. That's, that's really where my love affair, I know you have other stories and we'll talk about them as well. Before we get there, what is your love affair with coffee? Do you have a, and maybe as part of that, do you have your favorite roast bean or blend? Oh, um, coffee was part of growing up for me. Um, I grew up in Romaine. We had wood stove in the house. We had electric range too. I mean, we had electricity. It wasn't like that far back. Um, I'm old. I'm not that old. Uh, <laughs> but we did have a wood stove because it was cheaper to run wood than it was to run the electricity. And so there was always a wood stove running in the house. And on the back of the wood stove was um, what is probably now a classic uh, aluminum big-bodied percolator. Okay. So it was always on if as soon as you emptied the pot you had to put in the new pot if you if you drank it if you fixed if you finished it off you had to put in the new one that was the rule of the house and anybody who come to the house you know that would be that would be the beverage of choice you want a cup of coffee and so coffee was what i grew up with coffee was the drink of choice in my house it was the drink of choice for all of the people that i knew of all of the adults in my world um most of them weren't beer or wine drinkers, they, they drank coffee. Later when I went to board ship, you know, coffee plays a, an integral role. And, and I get a lot of abuse for the shipboard uh, fetish with right. coffee, <laughs> coffee and food. Um, I, heard it, but, I heard it called coffee porn already. but <laughs> Yeah, it's been called coffee, coffee porn. Um, but coffee is, is really – what fuels the crew the same way diesel fuels the engines and the coffee is is I, I don't want to give any kind of mystical properties but tea drinkers underway don't bank it very long uh, you drink coffee because that's what you do when you're underway it's it's the thing and people who don't drink coffee get looked at strangely people who don't like coffee get looked at strangely and what what makes good coffee is this coffee good is that coffee good and and who all of the little um 
rituals that different people have about their coffee mugs. For example, at chiefs on board ship, they get to have their own coffee mugs and they've got their name on them and you don't touch chief's coffee mug ever. You don't wash it, you don't offer, you don't nothing. The chief handles his own coffee cup, you don't ever touch it. These little little kinds of things that unless you've been out there, unless you've been part of it, it seems like really strange. It's really weird. Like, why is he always talking about coffee? Why is he always talking about food? And the reality is that when you're underway and you're standing watches and there is one day bleeds into the next, into the next, into the next. Think of uh, getting in your car and driving for 72 days in a row. You know, you lose track of what road you drove on and where you went and how you did it and everything else. And really, the only thing you're looking forward to is when's the next meal? You know, can I get a cup of coffee? And is the food any good? And so the importance of food and coffee underway is that it gives these people who would have nothing to look forward to something to look forward to in the very short term. So in the next three hours, I'm going to have a good meal. And it doesn't really matter what time of the day or night in the next three hours. I'm going to have a good meal. I can get a decent cup of coffee. Hmm. And I cannot think about the fact that I'm not going to be back ashore. I'm not seeing my loved ones for two weeks, three weeks, five weeks, 12 weeks, however long it is. Uh, It's why food and beverage, food and coffee in particular, are so important for shipboard life even now. And I just took that to the next step and took it out to intergalactic space. Right, right. When you think about even our society, how much – how central – coffee plays from the simple Starbucks to the mom and pop coffee shop. There's there, you know, we use these as social centers even now where we'll sit down and we'll get together as friends over coffee and we'll chat about our days and so on. So the, it makes sense that these become kind of the, the social centers of, 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 of the ships that you created, the intergalactic cruisers you have. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I, we're kind of dancing around this, but uh, miles, go ahead. Um, so for listeners who may not know or be familiar with the tales of the golden age, please give us a little background and the premise to the story. Okay. Um, for those who've heard this 65 times already, bear with me. Right. Uh, the golden age of the solar clipper was born because I got tired of reading the same old, uh, space opera science fiction where you had to blow something up every 15 pages and you had to save the universe every 50. Whether the, the main character was ship captain or king or hidden prince or somebody in a position of power who was able to use his position of power to win the day. And I thought, what did the red-shirted crewman do before he went to the away team? Did he have a job? And now Skulls is written red shirt, so I probably can't use that line anymore. <laughs> but, um, but are there smaller stories? Are there stories that that aren't being told because almost everything out there now is this big sweeping, we have to have an intergalactic war, we have to have um, aliens, we have to have all of these other accoutrements, or it's not really science fiction. Can we tell smaller stories where if I die, my universe ends, so isn't saving my life worth something? Um, And... And so I thought, well, okay, if we're going to tell smaller stories, if we're going to tell other kinds of stories, then I really do need to have a different kind of universe because there doesn't seem to be a place for those smaller stories without getting you know, too far down a rabbit hole I didn't really want to go in. And I thought, well, if I'm going to think of different kinds of stories, let's think of what if instead of sending out frigates 
we sent out freighters? And what if, instead of an air force, we sent an airline? What if what we settled was not colonies, but company towns? How would that look? Assuming that we have the technology to do it, assuming that we have this ability to provide uh, intergalactic, interstellar travel, assuming that, and given that I'm going to take the money from companies rather from governments to fund this operation, what does that look like? And so the golden age of the solar clipper grew out of that. Hmm. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, in, in that, the companies own most of the planets. Yeah, well, they lease them, actually. But yeah, the companies run in company towns. The planets are, for the most part, um, company towns. Uh, if you don't work for the company, you're not allowed to be on the planet. And, and different planets have different rules. But so far, the one that Ishmael started on uh, was a company town that didn't allow him to stay once he was no longer dependent and his mother was killed. So he was an orphan and he was going to either be deported and incur the cost of his own deportation and so start his new life with no skills and a big uh, big debt owed, uh, or he had to find a job that would allow him to get off planet since he already had determined that he couldn't find one that would allow him to stay on planet. Hmm. So he um, convinces the local union hall to hire him on as the lowest grade, which is a quarter share, and he goes to work on a mess deck and an, and an interstellar freighter right. on one of the solar clippers. Yep. The lowest McKendrick. The lowest McKendrick. Yeah, very good. Um, <laughs> I have to ask this because you kind of made allusion to – this at least earlier, but how is Ishmael Wong, who, who I think I mentioned this at Balticon, he reminds me very much of a fleshed out Atticus Finch for me. And, and I mean that because when you, when you look at Atticus Finch from Mockingbird, he's such a, he's such an up and in, in not perfect, but he's an, he's an upright citizen that really wants the best, really yep. wants the best. Um, how is Ishmael Wong in any way, like that, or maybe a little bit like you? I mean, because I'm sure your drawings from some of your past for this. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, I drew a lot of. I drew a lot from being aboard ship. Uh, I get a lot. It really informs all, like, pretty much all of the underway stuff. Oh, I'm sure. I never worked on a mess deck, but I was a watchstander. Uh, I know how that life is. I had some idea of what life is like for the officers, although I wasn't ever an officer. I was only an enlisted man. Um, but I, you know, I, it, it, all of that stuff informs how I think about it. But Ishmael Wong is really, he's really, I really wanted him to be kind of an everyman. I really wanted him to be, um, not somebody with power, not somebody with special skills, not somebody with, um, you know, unfair advantage. I wanted him to be just a guy. And and I think the telling part is that uh, to me he's just a guy. And so if there's if there's a part of me that's Ishmael Wong, um, I'm just a guy because Ishmael Wong is just a guy. 
Hmm. He's, he's actually – a lot of people think that he's uh, – are you familiar with the term Mary Sue? A what? In liter- a Mary Sue? Uh, heard the term, not familiar with what it means. Mary Sue is a, is a writing term and, okay. and frequently it's, it's uh, made gender specific for men to be Gary Stews. Uh, but the idea is that they are the perfect reflection of the author as the author would, would like himself to be. And so everything always goes right. Everything is always exactly how it should be in order for him to succeed in the end. And there are no obstacles and there's never anything wrong. And so a lot of people look at Ishmael Wong and think, well, yeah, he's just a Gary Stu. There's nothing here. This is a boring story. Nothing's really happening. And and that was one of the challenges that I faced was that actually a lot of stuff happens. And there's a lot of challenges that he has to overcome. But in reality, this is this is not the classic um, man versus man plot conflict structure that right. so much science fiction is. This is man versus nature. Right. And as such, it doesn't have the same kind of conflict structure that most people who are reading science fiction really are, are really used to. So when you change up the nature of the conflict, when you look at what he's really trying to do, which is survive in a world for which he has absolutely no background. And his role as part of the story is to really illuminate the world for the reader who has no idea what this universe is like. And he really fulfills the role of the other. And because it's first-person narrative, and because in the beginning in particular, he's young and stupid, a lot of the things that he says are young and stupid. And a lot of the things that he thinks that are right are actually quite wrong and we and come along and bite him in the butt later. Um, and a lot of the things that he, well, he, what he reports that he sees, he actually does see. His interpretation of what those things are is, is badly flawed in, in many cases. Uh, and it, it's not necessarily uh, intuitively obvious to the casual observer, shall we say, that that's really what's going on with this guy. Hmm. So, He's when when I wrote him and I still look at him and I think you know he's kind of dumb, uh, particularly in the early years he's kind of dumb. He gets smarter as he goes along, but in the in the early years you know the first three books the, the Lois McKendrick voyages uh, he, he's he's kind of a in some some ways he's kind of a dick and other ways he's kind of dumb and in most cases he thinks he's doing fine. Mm. Yeah, you know, uh, in fact, my next question actually kind of builds that. I said these stories are not high action per se. I mean, they have action in them. But when you get in, and that's typical for science fiction is that you see some action. But again, this plot revolves around him, as you said, surviving. And I found myself after the first four or five episodes saying, there's not a lot happening action-wise in these stories. Why am I hooked into these stories so much? Why am I connecting so much with this character? And I think that one of the things that helped me connect to it is instead of the plot revolving around action or this high conflict or him, you know, he's typically a likable guy. People typically don't get, you know, don't have a lot of problems with them. There are some, but not many. You know, it revolves around this whole idea of commerce and trade and them trying to get ahead. And mm-hmm. and I found for myself, my, one of my, you know, I spent way too many years playing World of Warcraft. And part of, part of the MMO gaming community is the whole trade and commerce type of thing. Um, 
And, and I liked the idea that here we had something that focused a, a little bit different. Uh, a little, the, the plot was a little bit different than what I was used to, but it was still engaging. Yeah, that actually was um, one of the one of the inspirations for this was uh, Sun Tzu's Art of War, which sounds really weird. Since there's very little war. In fact, there's no war. <laughs> right. But uh, one of the realities is that uh, my undergrad degree is business administration. And I did a lot of studying of business management and the various different schools of thought on business management. And one of the corporate training manuals for the CEOs in Japan is Sun Tzu's Art of War. Because for the Japanese, business is economic warfare. Mm -hmm. And what lives and dies is not necessarily the people, but the corporations. And so with that thought, you know, with that sort of little seed of inspiration and the idea that what I'm doing is creating uh, a collection of trading empires, a collection of corporations that are competing with each other and in some sense uh, collaborating with each other to settle intergalactic space or interstellar space. I guess it's not – yeah, it's interstellar space. Um, I had this this idea that, well, if a lot of science fiction now is based on physical warfare, can I have this sort of undercurrent of economic warfare to kind of give this a little more bite, to give them a reason for being out there, to give them, uh, for lack of a better term, some, some stage business, something to do while they're they're on the page. And so – this idea of the economics and I, somebody, one of one of my reviews complained that it was a it was a good economic textbooks on how to make money in the flea market, but it was really <laughs> science fiction. And it's like, yeah, okay, I can accept that uh, because there's a lot of economic theory in it. There's a lot of there's a lot of really esoteric crap in it that I don't know where it came from. It just sort of grew up. But yeah, the whole the whole notion of um, of economy of um, we we need to trade. We need to make a profit. We need to we need to buy cheap. We need to sell high. We need to figure out where the markets are. How do we figure out what the markets are? How do we figure out what products might sell there? Um, you know, this is in, is engaging to me in a very real level because it's what I'm doing, and in a rare um, as you know, trying to train to be able to shoot somebody and kill them at 400 yards. It's it's just a different kind of training. It's just yeah. a different area of expertise, and so I thought that would make that would fit well with the universe that I was creating, and and I really went with it and pushed it as far as I could. Hmm. Uh, so I have to ask this question before we um, move on: Are we going to get any other tales uh, regarding Ishmael Wong, or is that universe, or is, is his story? Oh no, kind of oh, closed? no, yeah, we're definitely um, the reason that the. The last book ends the way it does um, is because – and I'm not saying how it ends because I don't want to spoil it for people right. who haven't got that far. Um, but one of the things that was happening while I was writing Owner's Share, which is the last book in the in the Trader's Tales of the Golden Age of the Solar Clipper, it's volume six, was that um, J.K. Rowling was busy killing off Harry Potter. Is that a spoiler? Do people not know no, Harry Potter? Yeah, hopefully not. Yeah. Well, it's old enough now. If, if, if you still haven't figured that out, then 
I, I, have, I can't help you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so my fans were thinking, oh, my God, he's going to kill him off at the end. He's going to kill him off at the end. So I was getting a lot of emails. I was getting a lot of posts on my blog. I was getting a lot of Twitter. You can't kill him. You can't kill him. You can't kill him. And so I agreed that I wouldn't kill him. Um, but what I needed to do, because really the purpose of not killing him was so that I could tell other stories and I could go on and tell other stories. And as I got into deeper and deeper into owner's share or captain's share and then owner's share, um, it occurred to me that there were a lot of stories in this universe that I haven't told yet. And I really needed a rabbit hole for him to be able to go down after we get done with owner's share. And there has to be a reason for him to go down this rabbit hole. And there has to be a reason for him to go there. And there has to be a world that is not part of uh, being on the bridge. And so, you know, there has to be a place where he's not concerned about what what share he is. So, yeah, there's a lot. I've got three stories. I've got a trilogy lined up for when I finally finish off the works that I've already committed to. Uh, but there will be more Ishmael Wong. I don't know how many more. There'll be at least three. There okay. may be more. Good. Um, I want to write some Pip stories. I want Pip and Ishmael to get back together. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that I want to do with Ishmael now that he's of a certain age. He's now an adult. He's pretty much when we leave him, he's independently wealthy. I don't know whether he's going to keep it or not. Right. Um, I really don't. I really don't know what the stories are, quite frankly, until I sit down and write them. But I, I'm pretty sure that there's about three books left that I know of just to wrap up the loose ends from the six-book set already. Hmm. Go ahead. I, I know we have the shaman tales that take place in, in this universe. Yep. A, any future tales? There could very well be. I, I like this universe a lot. Um, I've, I've actually – when I first started – Doing Traders' Tales of the Golden Age of Solar Clipper, we went, uh, we we spun off the Shaman's Tales of the Golden Age of Solar Clipper. Um, I've had requests for romance stories from the Golden Age of the Solar Clipper. Um, I've had uh, requests for stories from the Academy. I've had requests for stories from other families. Uh, I've sort of toyed with the idea of writing the story of the original Lois McKendrick. So the woman for whom the Lois McKendrick is named and writing her backstory, I thought that would be an interesting one to, to try. Uh, I shied away from it because I wasn't sure that I could write uh, a female main character, particularly one who was older. Uh, and then, of course, I've, I've had the experience of writing Tanith Fairport, and that seemed to went pretty well so I, I'm not quite so shy about the idea that I might take on Lois McKendrick the woman alright so that might happen yet that might happen oh yeah oh yeah, yeah. I, I'm not ruling anything out um, I still got a lot of stories that I want to tell in this universe there's a whole side of this universe we haven't really we haven't really seen except in little glimpses here and there um, there is a black market but we haven't really seen it we've That's talked right. about it we've talked around it Right. We haven't really seen it. Odin's Outpost, which is set in the same universe, which is the novella, A Light in the Dark. Right. Uh, there's the origin story for, for that, which I need to flush out. I'm probably going to keep that as a series of novellas just because uh, they're shorter, punchier. Right. Um, we'll see how that works out. I've, I've had a couple of, of suggestions on how we might fill that universe out. But Odin's Outpost is um, 
uh, one of the artifacts, one of the evidences that there is uh, perhaps not quite so much peace and paradise as Ishmael's experience might have indicated so far. Why are there all these bodyguards floating around? Right. Why are there galactic marines? We didn't see any galactic marines. We haven't talked to any galactic marines. We haven't had any any warships, so there must be some. Hmm. So yeah. there's lots of stories yet to tell. Uh, oh, and there's the explorer's tales. Uh, remember uh, one of the reasons that uh, Francis was on the Lois McKendrick was that he was part of the exploration team and he used to go out and find new planets and he would go out and spend a year or so at a time out in the deep dark and he got tired of being bored and he still wanted to go out and so he, he gave up his PhD exploratory work and, and went to work on the Lois McKendrick until near the end of uh, full share he, he decides to do something else. Hmm. Uh, so there's all of these little hints and, and suggestions of other kinds of stories that I could tell in this universe that, that every one of them has some sort of appeal to me. Hmm. And I'm not going to live long enough to write them all. <laughs> Unfortunately, but uh, – or fortunately for, for whatever that's worth. Now, you have, you, have, you, have, um, you have other works beyond the Golden Age you've also written. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about them? Well, the, the Shaman's Tales of the Golden Age was uh, another, a NaNoWriMo okay. deal where um, after – in half share, a new crew member comes aboard the ship um, and she's um, the daughter of a shaman from uh, St. Cloud. And in St. Cloud, they have this tradition of carving these things called Welkies. And Welkies turned out to be such uh, an intriguing and engaging idea that when NaNoWriMo came around in that very first year that I'd written uh, Quarter Share, Half Share, Full Share, in November of that year was when I wrote um, the first shaman tale, South Coast, because they're carved by the South Coast, the shamans on the South Coast of St. Cloud. Hmm. And so I went back and started to do some of the backstory for this new crewman who, who joins uh, Sarah Krug uh, in Half Share. And I went back too far because I started telling the story of her father, figuring, well, I'll tell you know some of that backstory so that we can lay the groundwork for why the son of the shaman is the shaman is so important and why that forced Sarah off planet. And... I before I knew it, I had a whole story that just revolved around what constitutes power and what constitutes identity, and um, it's sort of a an interesting story about the father-son relationship between the son of the shaman and the shaman, and the one who was and the one who wasn't, and yet they both wind up at the end in very different places from where they started. Mm -hmm. So that that was. That was the spinoff there, and I still have to write the second book for that uh, to bridge between South Coast and Half Share, and that book will be entitled Cape Grace. And I've got that on my word processor, but I don't have very many words on it. Oh, very good. Well, I look um, forward to that. What's yeah? It's it, it's going to be fun because uh, the the auto Krug that you see leaving South Coast is very different from the Otto Krug that Sarah describes as her father. Oh, yes. So I've got 
I've got this challenge of how do I take this guy who is very sensitive, very uh, very in tune with the world, and how do I put him in a position where his daughter thinks that he's an incredibly cruel, vicious, and somewhat cowardly man? That's a so that's that's, a, that's, a that's be a fun book. Yeah, it'll be a it'll be a challenge. And the name Keep Grace that's uh, kind Keep, of uh, ironic Grace. too. Cape Grace, yeah. yeah, because they live on Cape Grace. Right, it came from right. Cape Grace. Right. Well, uh, we do got to wrap up this interview here. Uh, before before we go, where can people find out more about you, about your works, and where can you get a hold of like the Tales of the Solar Clipper and so on? Well, um, all the tales, all the tales from the all of my work is available in audio, except the short works. All my novels are available in audio. Um, the one novella, which is Light in the Dark, is available on Amazon. Uh, you can also I, you can also buy it from my website at solarclipper.com. Uh, my main website is nathanlowell.com, so it's pretty easy to find. Um, Google is the easiest way to find me. You put Nathan Lowell in, and I'm pretty much going to be the first four or five thousand hits. Um, for the fantasy work, which is uh, the 10th Fairport Adventures, the first book is out. Uh, it's out both in audio and in print. You can get it uh, um, on Kindle. I've, I've just republished it in in uh, ebook format through Smashwords, so you should be able to get it pretty much for any format that you want. Um, the second book is what I'm working on now, Zyphoria's Call, and then I'll have the third book out by year end. Uh, all six books of the Golden Age of the Solar Clipper are supposed to be available by end of year in print. Uh, and again, those are out through Ryden Publishing, uh, RydenPublishing.com. And you can order signed copies through them, and they will take the order and send me the slip, and I will sign your book and mail it to you. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. NathanLowell.com will tell you how to find me pretty much anywhere you want to know. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, sitting down and chatting with us here at the Sci-Fi Diner about all sorts of things tonight, but especially about your work in the science fiction world. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's yeah. been a lot of fun. Uh, well, Miles is here with me, my co-host. Hello, Miles. Hi, Nathan. So, and he he has not delved into the uh, saga of the Solar Clipper yet, so we're gonna have to try and convince him to do so. so. But, no, don't do it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Once you bite don't the bullet, it. you will not stop. I did the Solar Clipper in about a month. All of them. Oh, okay. Don't do it. It's like heroin. <laughs> do it. it is. It's like it's like heroin for the mind. Mm-hmm. So there we go. How's that for a description, Nate? It's, I, actually, it's been called crack. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Crack for your ears. Yeah, crack for your ears. I guess, I guess that's not a terrible compliment to have, right? I'll take it. I'll yeah. take it. <laughs> it. It boggles me. I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest. It, 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 it baffles me to a certain degree.